Thank you to Ken and Linda and Annalise for helping us out. Those of you who don't know, Mary Dunn, our piano player, broke her wrist last week. So they've done a great job helping fill in a, in a short amount of notice, and uh, we'll really appreciate that. If you will, please turn your Bibles to James chapter 4. And I want to say happy Mother's Day again, and it's good to see some mothers who aren't normally here here with us this morning, and some children who are here uh, to be with their mothers, and we are thankful to have you here to worship the Lord Jesus Christ with us. Uh, on the topic of mothers, I actually was going to try to teach a topical sermon on mothers, uh, but I've never preached a topical sermon in my life. And I don't even know how to really go about putting that together. And uh, I'm going to save that for maybe a sabbatical to try to figure out how to do that. So, uh, but I did uh, try to figure out a way to weave the idea of mothers into my introduction. So, start with mothers, then move to the the topic of of James. Uh, So, let's just see how this goes. In Deuteronomy chapter 10... Verse 14, Moses told God's people, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. In this statement, Moses is saying that God is the true owner of all things. God owns all wealth in his creation. He owns all food and every other material need. He owns all the creatures He owns every man, every woman, and every child. God owns it all. Now, this doesn't deny the idea that the Bible teaches private ownership. Uh, The commandment says, thou shalt not steal, implying don't steal what belongs to another individual. But as we'll see in James, we might own things, but we are not the ultimate owner. We are merely stewards. God has given those things to us to oversee uh, for this time. We have been given the privilege by God to manage wonderful treasures in his creation. And I think that mothers understand this privilege maybe in a special way. The Lord blesses them with a child, a child that they can nurture, a child that they can love, a child that they can watch grow up, a child that they can glory in their successes and comfort them in their failures and in their sufferings. Now I'm going to try to, as not the mama, to explain to you how I think a mama would feel. Now I have talked to some mothers about this, uh, but I could still be wrong, so if you need to correct me after the sermon, uh, please feel free to do that. So this is what I think Mothers feel and what they think. I don't think that mothers would say that the most difficult part of being a mother is getting up at all hours of the night when they're newborns and nursing them in the middle of the night. I don't think it's caring for fevers or scrapes or even broken bones or dealing with the little talkers when they're at that age where they talk all the time and they ask questions nonstop and you can never answer enough to feed the little questioning monster. Uh, 
I would say that the most difficult part of motherhood is the time of life when mothers are reminded that they are stewards of God's children. And they recognize this most when their authority over the child begins to diminish. It's most difficult when they grow up and when you have little to no say over what they will do. You can't tell them how to eat anymore. Uh, You can't tell them what career to choose. You have no say over when they'll go to the doctor, who they will marry, or especially if they will continue to follow Christ. The maturing of a child is a sober reminder that your child has always belonged to God and they have always been under his providential care and you were part of that providential care. God wants mothers to have the blessed privilege of raising and developing a special bond with their children. And he wants you to be an ongoing gospel-centered voice in their lives, even as adults. But he also wants you to do something that I think is probably the most difficult thing for a mother to do. He wants you to trust your babies to him, the one who has always been their owner, the one who has always been their provider. Now, this, isn't, this idea isn't just for mothers. We're going to see in the passage today that James is going to remind us all of this idea that God is the owner of all things. And it's an easy thing for us to just forget or brush to the side in our day-to-day lives. There's basically two ideas that I'm going to present from these verses. Uh, if you look in your bulletin, you'll see the outline. The first point is going to be Do not presume you belong to God. And the second point is do not exploit others belong to God. So let us look at God's word together, starting in James chapter 4, verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, and spend a year there, and trade, and make a profit? Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live, and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do, and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Now James begins by giving the example of how we presume that our lives belong to us. He says in verse 13, 
Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and make a profit. Here James is describing a traveling merchant. Now, traveling merchants were common during the time of James. And this merchant is basically putting out a one-year vision of his business plan. And you might say, what's wrong with that? Is there something wrong with, with planning ahead? Is James saying that, that we can't have goals, that we can't have plans and ideas about our business, about our life? Is James telling us that we cannot plan for tomorrow? Does he want us to live like a hermit? Sell everything we own and, and maybe climb a tree or something and wait for the return of the Lord. Or maybe wait till we starve to death from being so non-productive. Well, I hope you realize that, that that's silly. James would never teach us to do that. The Bible teaches us to plan, to work, and to expect the fruit of our labors in this life. Proverbs 12.11 says, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Jesus, being a student of, uh, sorry, James, being a student of, of the book of Proverbs, would never encourage us to adopt a non-productive life. Sorry, my throat just keeps drying up. Now, if we never planned ahead, we could not function in this life. So what is James talking about when he's warning us about our planning? James knows we have to plan, but in this statement he's telling us there is a danger in our planning. And the danger is that we might be tempted to presume that our plans are actually the sovereign plans. James says in verse 14, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Sam Albury, one of the commentators I read a lot, he says this, this is good. As Christians, we know where we will be in a million years, right? The Bible tells us that. We can read in the pages of Scripture We know where we're going to be. We know what's going to be going on. We know that God has planned for a million years from now. But we don't know what will happen tomorrow. God has not told us what's going to happen tomorrow. That is in God's hands just as much as the million years. But that is a secret to us. And we might act like we know what's going to happen tomorrow. We may make attempts to seize control of our future. But the stark truth is that we don't have any control over our futures. This is a truth that I think we're all aware of, but a truth that we probably don't like to think about a whole lot. We'll probably like to put that in a box, hide that somewhere, suppress it. But James says that as followers of Christ, we have to think about this. And he even wants us to reserve in our hearts and in our minds, a category for the idea that God, not us, is the one who is in control of tomorrow and the rest of our future. And 
as if reminding us about the uncertainty of tomorrow wasn't enough to upset us, James is going to give us a second truth that we really don't want to think about. In the rest of verse 14, he says, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. A lot of us probably grow up reading lots of good stories in the Bible. David and Goliath, uh, stories about Samson, Gideon, uh, Moses, Elijah and his chariot. Uh, We love to read about these stories, and they captivate us. But we probably don't consider, as we're reading these stories, that in the vast space of time, these people's lives were just a mist. They were just a mist. They were momentary. They were temporary. And it's the same for us. Just like them. Our time, our history, our story is fleeting. Now, we can, achieve, we can choose to ignore this truth. We can suppress it, forget about it, don't want to think about that. But James gives us a different approach. He says in verse 15, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. Now, I have to take a second to just pick on the husbands for a second. Don't use this phrase uh, to aggravate your wife with. Okay, so don't, if, if, if your wife is going to the mall to buy a new pair of shoes, don't say, if the Lord wills, you're going to do that. Uh, James likes marriages. He wants you to stay together. Uh, and I don't believe James wants us to go around taking up this phrase like it's some kind of mantra to correct everyday speech. We don't see Jesus and the disciples going around telling everybody, you should say if the Lord wills. I think what James is saying here is he wants this to be your heart attitude. James wants you in your heart to acknowledge the fact that you might have plans. And it's okay for you to have plans. But in your heart, you need to acknowledge that my Lord has every right to take control and seize my plans and move them towards his purposes. We must accept God's sovereignty over our time. And sometimes that's difficult. The detours that God chooses for us, the changes in our life, they often don't make sense. But as faithful servants, we have to get the truth in our hearts that it is not always our business to know everything about what God plans to do with our lives. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The Lord has not revealed everything to us. And there are probably circumstances in our lives that make us kind of throw up our hands and say, God, how does this fit into your purposes? And we may never know in this life. Sometimes we can look back and say, yeah, I can see how God used that. But it's possible we'll never know. Those are the secret things. Those belong to God. But the good news is the rest of Deuteronomy 29, 29. 
it says that the revealed things belong to us and to our children forever. The revealed things are truths like God is good, God is just, God is holy, God is faithful. God is working his good purposes for your good in all of the circumstances of your life. Our plans, doing things our way, could never produce his good results. So, we should trust the one who is able to providentially use all the things that we see as a mess and accomplish our salvation with those things. And the good thing is that if you focus on the revealed things when you're perplexed by the secret things, that can keep you trusting in him. So you need to focus on the revealed things not the secret things. The revealed things build faith. Sometimes the secret things can make you question. Now James goes on to say in verses 16 and 17, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. James says that it is arrogant and even evil to boast about your future plans without recognizing God's ownership over you and over your future. But what does this phrase mean when he says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin? Well, it kind of sounds like it's been thrown in there out of the blue. But in the context, I believe what James is saying here is that for you to treat your time as though you are sovereign over your future, while in your heart you know that God is the one who really owns your time. That is willful sinning. So you know the right thing to do. You know that God is the true owner of your time. But you do whatever you want to do with your time anyway. That's double-mindedness. And that's what James is referring to here from chapter 1. It's a double-minded heart to know to do the right thing and to not do it. That's willful, rebellious sin. And in this statement, James is getting personal. James has gotten personal before. He's not afraid to do that. He wants us to evaluate in our hearts how we are prioritizing the mist of time that we have here in this life. Are we considering the one who owns us in our plans? Are we considering the one who owns us in our time? Are we too busy for God? Are we too busy for the means of grace? Are we neglecting our family and our church in order to build our little financial empires that are temporal here in this world? Remember, James' epistle is an epistle of testing James wants you to overcome. He wants you to to be triumphant over temptations in this world. James does not want to see us end up like the rich man that Chilson read about. The man that Jesus talked about in the Gospels, the one who 
who had all these crops. And he made plans to build big barns and store up all his wealth. The man who said to his soul, You have ample goods stored up for many years. Now you can relax, eat, drink, and be merry. This man did not consider God's ownership over his time. And what did God say about him? He said, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So do not presume that your time and your plans belong to you. They do not. You and your time belong to God. Now, if you're feeling kind of bad now, I want to remind you that that God is not harsh in this. He's really not. He doesn't command everyone to sell everything that they own and move to the mission field. Obviously, we're all here this morning. I don't believe he means for everyone to exert all their effort to go to every worship service they possibly can for their entire life. I don't think he expects you to read your Bible and pray 24-7. God knows you. God created you. He knows what you can do, and he knows what your limits are. He knows your limits physically. He knows your limits emotionally. And I think he gives grace in those areas. So don't beat yourself up. But you also need to ask yourself this question. Am I taking advantage of that grace? In my heart, am I hoarding my time away from God, knowing that it truly belongs to him? And we all have to examine our hearts and determine that for ourselves. So we need to avoid the temptation of believing that our lives and our time belong to us rather than to God. But now James is going to talk about an even more heinous sin. The sin of you believing that other people's time and other people who belong to God belong to you. And that brings us to our second point. The exploiting of those who belong to God. In James 5, 1 through 6, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. In this portion, James is taking up the language of an Old Testament prophet. And the Old Testament prophets confronted the wicked rich. This automatically brought to my mind the prophet Amos, who a lot of his, his, uh, his book is devoted uh, to going against the wicked, wealthy people of his, of his time. Uh, Amos speaks to these people in Amos chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. He says, 
Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is a darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Like Amos, James wants to shake these wicked people out of their comfort and make them recognize that if they do not repent quickly, their judgment is upon them. So what kind of injustices have these people enacted? James says they have not paid their laborers. They have defrauded those who are poor. They have taken advantage of those who have no earthly power to seek justice. But James reminds these people that although they may for this short season be triumphant in their abuse, that God is hearing and he's keeping record of the just cries of his people whom they are oppressing. The images here in James 5 are far beyond anything that I hope any of us would be guilty of. And they're beyond the conduct that we could ever imagine someone who professes the name of Jesus Christ would commit. But here they are in a letter to a church that belongs to Jesus Christ. Now, it's possible that James is speaking of rich oppressors of God's people outside the church. That's a very uh, probable way to interpret this. But they could also be inside the church. We've already seen in chapter 2 the rich of the church being accused of shunning the poor. And we've even seen in chapter 4 the recipients of this letter being accused of sins as heinous as murder towards their brother and sister. Whichever way you want to see these wicked rich people, whether they're outside or inside the church, I think there are at least two lessons for us to learn from these verses. First, there will be a terrible reckoning for those who abuse their power and act as if they have ownership over those who are owned by God. Their wealth, their power, their fame, those things will do nothing for them on the day of judgment. In fact, those things are being stored up and kept as evidence that will speak against them. Those things will eat them up on the day of judgment. And if we find ourselves mistreated by someone with power, James says we can have confidence that God is just and that there will be justice. And he hears the cries of those who are oppressed. And the second lesson is this. We must also not be enamored by the wicked, powerful people of the world. If we heed the lesson of James in the first section, that we in our time belong to God, so we in our hearts develop the idea that my time belongs to God and I'm devoting it to Him and not to this world. And then we experience our own material loss or suffering, and then we look at a wicked person who is becoming rich and wealthy and powerful, we could actually doubt God's good purposes for our life. 
But biblical truth should teach us that we should never envy those who only have hope in this mist of a life. We should not be jealous of those who are heaping up treasures of judgment against themselves for a day of judgment that is coming to them sooner than they realize. In Psalm 73, the psalmist deals with this dilemma in his heart. He actually says that he was becoming envious of the wicked because he saw them prospering. And it seemed as though God was actually blessing them for being wicked. And this perplexed him. Well, in the middle of the psalm, the psalmist comes to his senses. And he says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. The psalmist realized that for the wicked rich, this life is their best life. And the mist of joy that they are receiving in the here and now is not worth the judgment and the horror that they will face on the day of God's wrath. When you understand the concept of God's ownership of all things, you will not envy the wicked rich. You will pity them. You will pray for them. And you will fear for them. Now, in conclusion, 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. God owns all of creation, but he owns the church in a special way. You are his treasured possession. He paid the highest price imaginable when he bought you. He paid the price of his precious son. The Lord Jesus suffered, died, and rose from the grave so that he could ransom you from a hideous future from the hideous plans that we all have for ourselves. He saved us from those things. So if you have struggled in your heart to recognize God as the Lord of your time, if you have even found yourself in a place where you are exploiting those and abusing your power over those who belong to God, you need to know that there is still time for salvation and forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ. But you need to turn from those sins and pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to give you a heart that truly and genuinely recognizes God's ownership over all things. And you need to rest in the truth that although you may have to give up your plans and not do things your way, the Lord has made a way through Jesus Christ to give you far more, far more than you could ever think or ask. Amen.